right. I I'm excited. I'm excited uh, just to continue in this concept of in this this journey of of um, us being God's anointed. So to to this point, we've done a deep dive into the Old Testament about where the anointing, this concept of being anointed, has came from. It came from the consecration of the, the tabernacle, all, everything within it, the altar, the utensils, including the priests that would serve in it, and they would all be considered holy. Um, and we've seen how that is a connection to us receiving the Holy Spirit. So kings and priests uh, were anointed and the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Uh, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and at that moment, when he was, after he was baptized, the Holy Spirit fell, anointed him, uh, and consecrated, set him apart to do the work that he was supposed to do, and that was the, the beginning of his ministry. Uh, this now, Last week, we really talked about and saw how this concept of being anointed, it consecrates us, it sets us apart for this uncommon life with uncommon purpose. And I think we need to get those that language in our in our spirits, right? That God calls us to the uncommon. Uh, we live our lives every day commonplace. People live their lives commonplace, and I see a lot of Christians living their life commonplace. They live just like everybody else, right? And so many of us, we just we just live day to day like everybody else. We want the same things. We pursue the same things, and yet we're called to an uncommon purpose of our lives. We're the, we're the fine china, we're not the, the Tupperware, not the ever, you know, we're not the everyday use, right? Hmm? Or paper plates. All right, we're not, certainly not, our, not the paper plates, right? We're, we're not to be disposed. We're supposed to be, um, we're supposed to be well-maintained. We're supposed to be um, honored from the perspective of that we have a, a job of honor to do. And that just simply means that we're not looking for other people to honor us. We're trying to keep ourselves separated from the common things of the world, the, 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 the dirty things of the world, the corrupting things of the world. And he calls us into this place of uncommon uh, purpose. And when, we, when we're born again, we, need to, we don't just make up our minds to become uncommon to become holy you know we have to be anointed by the holy spirit which comes through being born again we we literally have to say goodbye to our old life we've got to uh, be born into god's kingdom uh, the old life is has is goes into the grave just like jesus went to the grave our new life is born in him just like jesus came out of the grave and that's the whole picture of water baptism and we have a completely changed identity. We are now a king's kid. We have a royal inheritance. We have, we, we have um, purpose beyond uh, simply serving. Um, and we, of course, as Christians, we all serve. We serve the Lord every day. That's our, our drive and our purpose. But it's, it's serving as a child, not serving as a servant. Because a servant doesn't have an inheritance, but a child does in, the house, in a house. So you can no longer live the common life as you once did. But when you've been purified, we're given a new name and a new purpose. Amen. We need to get that deep within our spirit. God thinks of us far differently than what we think about ourselves. So I'd like to, to, to look at what some, today what some of the implications of 
of what that means and, and especially meant for the early church. So I want to look at the inauguration of the church and, and we're going to go to, to Acts chapter one to start here. Um, Acts chapter one, verses four through eight. Uh, and this was just before Jesus' ascension into heaven. Uh, and he said these words from Acts 1, 4 uh, through 8. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. Now notice this. He says something's coming. I don't want you to do anything. Just stay here. Don't move. Stay here until the Holy Spirit comes. Okay? Again, that's consecration. Set aside for a particular purpose. Don't move. Jesus spent 30 years, and as far as we know, he didn't do anything but being a carpenter. A good son, you know. Obviously, we knew he was growing in the wisdom of the Lord and the favor of men. We knew that, but there was no recorded miracles. There was no ministry until the time came and the Holy Spirit anointed him to do the work. Then he began his ministry. So too, what Jesus was saying, as the Father has sent me, I also, in the same way, send you. Uh, I want you to stay here and wait to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. That's he set apart. So he's saying, hold on here. In verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? He said, it's, he said, it's not for you to know the times or periods. That's the father, uh, that the father sets uh, by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And this is exciting to me because he says, after you've received the power of the Holy Spirit, power, the, word, the Greek word for power is dunamis, which was where we get the word dynamite. So we're not, not talking about wimpy power, we're talking about power power, right? Things that can we can tear down strongholds if necessary. Um, with the power of the Holy, the Holy Spirit, when that power comes on you, when you're anointed with that, then you will be my witnesses. Then you will go. But until then, stay. Until you receive the anointing. Then you will go after you're empowered. Okay? So he, there, we have to get this... this the way that God the Father did it for Jesus is the way he does it for us. Jesus didn't go and to get tempted. He didn't go and get um, uh, perform his miracles or any of those things until it was God's timing. God the Father said go and anointed him and empowered him to do so. Okay. Jesus instructed the disciples not to go anywhere until they were baptized or anointed by the Holy Spirit. They would receive the Holy Spirit and give them power. Now, and then he says, you will be by witnesses. Okay, so what is a witness? It's a, it, exactly that. It's a legal term, right? It's one who observed an event firsthand. They were there, right? It's true because this person was witness to it, okay? So we understand that. But did you know what the Greek word for witness is in Scripture? Martus. 
where we get the word martyr. Now, as you're going through scripture and you're going to see the word witness, you are my witnesses. We've witnessed, witness, witness. Always, it's the Greek word, martyr. This is interesting to me. What is a martyr? It's a person who dies for a belief or a cause or for a people, right? They're willing to lay their life down because they are so sold out to the belief, the ideal, the people, okay? Now think about this. To enter the family of God, what has to happen to us? We have to lay ourselves down. We have to voluntarily die and be born again. We have to voluntarily die, have our old self crucified with Christ, voluntarily die to become born again into his kingdom. We have to be so sold out at his witnesses that we recognize our lives are simply laid down before him and for his purposes. Think about that. We are Jesus martyrs. Now, for some, there are physical martyrs, right? In the Bible, he talks about Stephen and others, right? Who, and, and we've had countless martyrs for the kingdom uh, since that time. Of people, people have laid down their physical lives. But it, in, in those cases where people were laying them, their lives down, in every one of those cases, there's one thing that is true in every case. They didn't see their life as something to be spared or protected. It, was, it wasn't theirs to, to preserve. They simply laid it down just the way Jesus did. That's what a martyr does. They don't even, they might feel the feelings and the fears, but there's something that drives them beyond that, overrides that. And he says, after you've received power, you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I mean, think, read scripture differently with that in mind. And besides, in, in a witness, we, we think of wit, being witnesses as, as a verb, right? Something that we do. I witness to this person at the supermarket. I witness to this person that I saw. I witness to my friend. Or, but witness really isn't a verb, is it? It's a noun. It's not something we do. It's, some, it's someone we are. And that's what Jesus was saying. He goes, you will, be wit you will witness in Jerusalem and in Judea. No, he says, you will be my witnesses. You're going to be the ones that testify of the truth. And you're going to do this because you've been empowered and you have laid yourself down. You've been born again. You have a different call. You have a different purpose. This is the uncommon life we're being called to. It's not the common life. I mean, common life, people don't think like this. They certainly don't think from the perspective of being a martyr. And some people, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me that we, we often will talk about that. I, I don't know about you, but I've, I think about that from time to time. What if I was in a situation where my life was threatened? Would I be willing to die in sometimes a very horrible death? for the sake of Christ. And we, I don't know, I'm probably not alone here. We've probably all had that thought at some point or multiple times. And I, I, 
when I have those thoughts, and I, especially when I'm thinking, yeah, I think I would do that. I feel like the presence of God would be there, and He would give me the strength and overcome and all this kind of stuff. And and I and I think all of us probably have similar thoughts, or we would at least hope that if we were in that situation, and they, you know, they said, you know, deny Jesus or die, that we would not deny Jesus and we would be willing to die, whatever the whatever the cost would be. And I I have that, and we that's. I think that's admirable to think about. I think it's admirable to think that we would we would respond that way. I think it's good to to consider. But then I feel incredibly hypocritical when I'm in a situation when I'm talking to non-Christians, maybe at work or wherever, and they say something that I know that I need to speak up as a witness for Christ. And I chicken out because I don't want them to make fun of me or think different of me. But then I feel like I'm going to go to the, I would be willing to die for him. You know, we're, we're, you know it's like we, we think about the big things in life, right? Um, the implications. But what about the small everyday things? The Bible says that it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little decisions that we make to stand up and say, I'm going to be a witness for Christ, even though people will think less of me. The common life, the common Christian, hides in those moments and, and, and isn't a witness for Christ, isn't willing to martyr themselves, their reputation in that moment. The uncommon Christian is willing to say, no, I know the truth and I wanna share it with you, regardless of what they think about it. You will be my witnesses. This is the beginning of power. This is the beginning of the anointing. This is the beginning of the family of God. How many of you came into Christ's family? How many of you came into your walk with Christ with the idea that I'm ready to lay my life down for him? Very few, I bet. Most of us come to Christ because somebody said, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you say the simple prayer, you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven. And we yell, we're like, oh, who wouldn't want to do that? Even if you didn't believe it, I would, I mean, I would walk, I would do it just because, you know, even if I didn't fully believe it, because maybe if it's true, well then good. I've got my fire insurance. I'm good to go. A lot of people come to, to the Lord like that, but he's saying that you're to be my martyrs. Well, that's a whole different story. But that's actually what he's calling to us. That new identity is to leave your old self-preservation at the door. When you walk into his house, you leave your self-preservation. You are his vessel. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, right? He is the one that's doing, and he's, he's going to accomplish his plans and his purposes through you, whether that means that you have a wonderful, glorious life with a lot of comforts or you, you really suffer your whole life. If, if you're surrendered to the Lord, it doesn't matter. The crowns are the same, right? If you have fully obeyed the Lord, it doesn't matter what, what lot we're given, what hand we've been dealt, because it doesn't, it doesn't matter because it's not, he owns my life. I've been bought with, it's not mine. I've, I've been bought with a price. I've, I'm a martyr now, it's, I'm laying it down. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter if I'm mistreated. I'm his, he can do what he wants with me. And, and, uh, and I think we have a hard time with that. 
And so moving on, when Jesus uh, poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, now we're at Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And we all know this scripture really well. When the day of Pentecost has arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues of flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. Immediately after receiving the Spirit, they began their work. That what I love about this, this illustration, or not this illustration, but about the way that, that uh, Luke, when he depicts what happened here, is, is Jesus said, don't go anywhere until you're anointed with the Holy Spirit. And, and as soon as, literally within the same moment that the Holy Spirit came on them, they started speaking in languages that they didn't even learn or, un, or, or understand. They spoke in other tongues. They were immediately activated with a gift that would bring gospel to other nations. In that moment. God is not, I mean, he's, he's, he's not fooling around here. When he says, when you're endued with power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, the other ends of the, all, the, all over the world. And I'm giving you, I'm, uh, to prove that to you, the very first miracle that we see, gift of the Holy Spirit poured out, was tongues. Now, I'm not going to get into a, a teaching on the gift of tongues, but it manifests itself in different ways. And one of the ways is speaking an earthly language that other people can hear um, and understand, even though you have never learned the language. And I know people who have, that has happened to. And that was the very first thing. You're my witnesses. And it's through speaking that you will be my witnesses. I, I don't like the, that phrase people say, um, witness, witness, uh, um, oh, be witness for Jesus wherever you go and when necessary, use words. It goes something like that. Have you ever heard that before? You ever hear that? Um, be a witness wherever you go, but in when necessary, use words. So the idea is cool, right? The idea is, be the, is being the witness and not just speaking. But being a witness includes speaking, right? And, and so, yes, we can, we can be a witness that people can look at our lives, see what we do and, and how we conduct ourselves and our family and our integrity and all that kind of stuff. And, they, and that can represent Christ. And that is a witness. Yes, absolutely. In fact, you can't speak the gospel of Jesus with any credibility unless your life bears witness to the fact that the gospel is actually fruitful in your life. Okay. But it is speaking. We have to speak the words. The gospel is good news. Good news has to be communicated. Good news has to be spoken, right? And so uh, the very first thing that the Holy Spirit did is they gave them a language to speak the good news. And I just, I love that. And it was instant. That's, that's what's so cool. And so they, 
Of course, we know the rest of the story. They stumbled out into the streets. People thought they were drunk because they couldn't understand why they were speaking languages when they weren't from their, their region and they were understanding it. And it's like, what is going on here? But we know the result. And the result was 3,000 people got saved that day. 3,000. I want to see that kind of revival again. That's one day. That's one day. I think a couple pages over, what? 2,000, 5,000, was it 5,000 people got saved? I think a few, few pages over. You need a bigger house. You need a bigger house, right? <laughs> I would like that. Okay, so now we have these disciples receive the Holy Spirit. Now they're fully activated. Now it's go time, right? Now they are fulfilling great commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, right? Again, preaching is what? Speaking, right? Okay, so the disciples had this new purpose. The church would now represent Jesus everywhere they go and in everything that they did. They're now representing Christ, okay? Because we're endued with the power, the Holy Spirit anointed. Their lives, our lives are no longer our own. The church now would move forward under the authority of Jesus Christ. And you know, it was really interesting to me because it wasn't until recently as I was reading the book of Acts, last, this, we've just finished the book of Acts and I was going through this and I've read Acts countless times, countless times. But I love when you're reading scripture and you see something for the first time, you never noticed it before. And we talked about this in one of our life groups uh, uh, probably a month ago or so, or at least four weeks back. And um, I wanna go through that a little bit. What did these witnesses, these martyrs for Christ, how did they see themselves? What, what, what did they do, okay? So let's go to Acts chapter three now and verse one through seven. I'm gonna go through a lot of scripture here because it's just so good. <laughs> uh, Acts chapter three, one through seven. This event that I'm about ready to describe, uh, to, to read here is the first miracle outside of, I would say speaking another language he's never learned is a, is a miracle as well, right? Um, but, and, and 3000 people getting saved in one day is pretty miraculous as far as I can tell. Um, but this is the first healing, supernatural healing or miracle that we've seen in scripture. Okay. The first one. And I, you know me about, if you, if you listen to me much, I'm all about first, first mention principle when studying scripture is really important. So what it does when something is first, a topic is first mentioned in scripture, it sets the tone, it sets the foundation, uh, that we need to take into consideration as we continue on. Right. So here's, here's the first miracle healing done by the disciples recorded in scripture uh, since the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost. Okay, so let's look at it. Acts chapter three, verses one through seven. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called beautiful so that he would he could beg for those uh, from those who are entering the temple when he saw peter and john about to enter the temple temple he asked for money peter along with john looked straight at him and said look at us don't ever ever underestimate the power of eye contact when you're being a witness let people see your eyes when you're being a witness for Christ, don't be sheepish about it. Look him in the eye. 
that one's for free. <laughs> so he turned to them, expecting to receive uh, something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. First time. He looks at him and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's a lot of description. First of all, Jesus was a common name. Right? It was actually Joshua. Right? It's more, more accurately, uh, it's Yeshua, right? Which is actually more accurately translated as jo Joshua, if we would, you know. But Joshua was a, was a common name. But he says, so Joshua, Christ, the anointed. So we have Joshua, or Yeshua, the anointed. And in, just in case you're still confused, of Nazareth. We're talking about one very specific person here. You see that a, a number of times in scripture. But I love that the first one is so descriptive. In the name of Jesus, Yeshua, the anointed of Nazareth. Get up and walk. Note what he did not do. He didn't pray. Peter and John did not pray. They didn't say, bow your heads. Bow your heads with me, and we're going to ask God if it's his will that you would be healed. It's not there. In fact, you probably won't ever, and I would love to find an exception, you won't ever see an example in the book of Acts or any of the epistles where any of the disciples ask God if it's his will that someone should be healed. In fact, you never see them pray. You see them command. There are times where they prayed before they commanded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are instances, of course. The, the ability to command healing comes through prayer. It comes through relationship. But when it comes to someone coming uh, into health, we see this command. That's not what I want to talk about today. That'll be another teaching. But he said, get up and walk. It was a command. And we need to understand the importance of that. When they spoke in the name of Jesus, they were acting on Jesus' behalf. See, we pray at, in the end of our prayer, what do we say? In the name of Jesus, amen. When we pray for somebody for healing, we say be healed in Jesus' name. Those aren't magic words. Right? It's not like a formula that we're using. And we use it so frequently, we don't, again, it's, it's like we get too familiar with what we do and we don't realize why we do it anymore. And it begins to lack any type of 
of meaning to us. When we say in the name of Jesus, we're speaking of authority. We're given authority in his name. And this is why this became such a big deal. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Now, so now you had this man who has been lame since birth. Everybody saw him at the temple. He was there begging all the time for however many years. He was, we do know later in scripture that he was over 40 years old. And so we're talking about somebody that, you know, he's, he's a hopeless cause, right? But suddenly he gets up and walk at the hands of Peter and John. Acts 3, 11 through 16. While he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people utterly astonished ran toward them in what's called Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? They commanded, they commanded in the name of Jesus, but they immediately told the people has nothing to do with us. Isn't that interesting? He said, we're simply conduits of Jesus' power. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this, martyrs of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of you all. How is he healed? He was healed in his name, in the name of Jesus. The very first instance of someone getting healed after Pentecost, suddenly we're seeing a lot of focus being put on in his name. And we need to pay attention to this. They gave Jesus the credit for the healing. The word I, I said about channel, that they were a channel. Faith comes through Jesus. The word through, I looked at that in the Greek, and it literally means by way of or a channel. Okay? Like a conduit. Faith, the word through literally means that's the thing that it was through. All It, it was done by, by means of Jesus. Jesus alone. Okay, so... After this, then, the, then the, the temple police come and they arrest uh, Peter and John. And so in chapter 4, verse 5 through 13, it says this. Let's go through this. The next day, the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, uh, Caiaphas, John Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before him, they began to question them, by what power or in what name... Have you done this? 
Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. They didn't move off of this point. By the name of Jesus, this happened. Through the name of Jesus. And let all of you guys know this. This has nothing to do with us. It was the name of Jesus. This Jesus, verse 11, this Jesus, the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. This, there is salvation in no one else For there is, say it with me, no other name under heaven and earth given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that scripture. That's hopeful. If you don't feel like you're educated enough, you don't feel like you're, you know, that you're, that, you know, you're just kind of too ordinary, right? You're uneducated, you're untrained. All you got to do is be with Jesus and it will amaze the most educated and the most trained. Because, you, they were, because these people were not speaking or doing anything out of their own ambition. They were doing everything in the name of Jesus. All the power that they had and they operated with was within Jesus' name. And this was the problem that the Pharisees had. All the temple people had a problem with this. They didn't really care that a man who had been disabled for 40 years, a beggar, was healed. They were more concerned, why are you doing this? Who gave you the authority to do this? Okay, so... You would think that that'd be the end of it. It's not the end of it. It continues on, and the name of Jesus is still going to be a problem for them. So in verse 14, if we keep going, 14 through 18, it says, And since they saw the man who had been healed was standing with them, and they had nothing to say in opposition, after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they were uh, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. I love when God gives us power that the unbeliever can't deny. But so that but so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for for them and ordered them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Didn't say they couldn't heal people. Couldn't say they couldn't do nice things. But don't do anything under the authority of this name, Jesus. They have little concern with the ability or the message. They have a problem with the authority. The disciples were clearly not submitted to the Pharisees' authority, but someone else's, and they didn't like it. 
And see, that's the problem for the believer. Is because we are operating under, under someone else's authority and it can't be controlled. It can't be controlled. In fact, this becomes an issue that the disciples bring up. They can't control it either, right? Acts 4, 19 through 20, it says, Peter and John answer them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to speak, for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Why were they unable? Because they're martyrs, they're witnesses. That's who we are. We're unable to stop. They had the full revelation of what it meant to be a witness of Jesus. So the disciples are released. They go back to the other disciples and they all begin to, to they share the story. They all begin to pray. And this is one of the things that they said as a group, it says, for in fact, the city of Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They're praying this to God, right? God, the father, the holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will has predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant to us uh, your servants that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Words are important. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Do you see the pattern here? In the name, in the name, in the name, in the name. This is, and we're only up to chapter four of Acts. That's, and it's centering around one miracle, right? But it sparked this this, I feel like God's saying that there's something that we've got to understand. They continued to challenge him this. The apostles then are arrested a second time. In Acts chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, they said to him, the, the Sanhedrin, Did we strictly or didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. Why? They're martyrs. They're witnesses. They're men under authority. And they know it. And I don't know if that we know enough of how much this applies to us. Equally, it applies to us. So the Sanhedrin convenes, same situation, chapter 5. Sanhedrin convenes and they, to decide what to do with them after they arrested them a second time. And so in, in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 38 through 40, it says, So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if, if this plan, For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But is, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even, you may even fa be found fighting against God himself. They were persuaded by him. After they called the apostles, they had them flogged and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they, the disciples, went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name 
I love that, I love that Luke wrote it that way. Yeah. Not that uh, treated shamefully on the, on the behalf of Jesus, but the name. He continues to support the fact that the name is so important. I see people like arguing. Some people are like, oh, we need to call him Jesus. It's, no, it's Yeshua. None of that matters. It's the authority of what the name represents, not the translation. You know, you're in, you're in uh, Central America. He's Jesus, right? You're in Haiti. He's uh, Jay-Z, right? You're in America. He's, he's Jesus, right? There's, it, doesn't, he's, his, his name, it doesn't matter. It all represents the authority of the one. Jesus. How do, we, how do we understand this authority? Why is this thing so important? Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Jesus came on the scene and changed everything, everything about the perception of who God was and how God accomplishes his plans. And he didn't come as one that was sheepishly taking information uh, that had been passed down to them and sheepishly giving that information to someone else. No, he's speaking as the author of life. He's speaking as the one who was there at the beginning when the world was created. He was speaking as the one who was there when the, the devil was cast out of heaven. He was speaking as the one who would come back as the conquering hero in Revelation, right? And he would, he would uh, renew and restore heaven and earth, right? He, he's, he's the one uh, who carries all authority. It goes on, he says, in, in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, he says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority? Again, they were constantly uh, concerned about this, this idea of authority. Who gave this to you? And of course, if we read the rest of it, he goes, I'll tell you who gave me authority if you can answer me this question. John's baptism. Was it earthly of origin or was it from God? And of course, that was a, a question that they weren't willing to answer. And he goes, well, neither will I tell you who gave me this authority. It should have been apparent to them. And that's why he didn't say it. He did say it to his disciples repeatedly. He, he, we know that God the Father gave Jesus the authority it was written, in fact, I think I have it as part of my notes here. Yeah. In, in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Right? And he said this right before giving us the Great Commission. The authority of Jesus. He walked in this authority because he was given the authority. And authority meant a significant amount to him. In fact, it was, such, it's, it's, it was such a key in understanding that that's the source of our faith is that uh, I believe Ma um, 
this was included in the Gospels, in multiple Gospels. Let's turn there quick. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 and 10, 5 through 10. And this is about the centurion. You might remember this, this, uh, this story. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. He said to him, am I, come, am I to come and heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. Having soldiers under my command, I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to, to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found one, anyone in Israel with such great faith. What was the key to his faith? He understood authority. The centurion, a non-Jew, a non-Jew that the, that the Jews hated, in fact. The centurion understood authority. He had a, an authority in the world. And that was a great illustration for him to understand the authority in the spirit. And when he looked at Jesus, he goes, that, that man has authority in the spirit. So all he has to do is say the word. He doesn't actually, he, he doesn't have to go and perform anything. He doesn't, he just simply has to say the word. Because that's what I do. I simply say the word and people get it done. What does that mean for us? If we're to speak in Jesus' name, if we're to teach in Jesus' name, if we're to heal in Jesus' name, if we're to, to be the witnesses, do we have enough of an understanding of the authority that has been given to us? It's the greatest compliment that Jesus ever paid for faith. More than the woman with the issue of blood and everything else, this is the one that got complimented because I've never seen such great faith. And it had to do with authority. The authority that Jesus has has been given to us. We need to understand this. Like I said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, it says, Jesus came near and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, therefore, okay, because I have the authority, this is going to happen. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is tied to Jesus' authority. The authority of the Father was given to Jesus. Jesus then commissions us to carry out his work, the body of Christ. He calls us the body of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We already went through that, right? To carry on the work. In fact, then in, in John chapter 20, verse 21, 22, it says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, or as in the same way, so as 
the Father has sent me. In the same way, I also send you. Jesus came in. He was born of the Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He was conceived in the Spirit as we're conceived. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit on his baptism. So too we have to be born in the Spirit, anointed for the work, and then we're commissioned to go out and to do the work, to fulfill the, the, the Great Commission, right? And it's not just winning people to Jesus, as I should say the word just, right? That is it. But it's also wrapped in all of the other things that he said. He said, you will lay your hands on the sick and they will recover. You will, you will uh, cast out demons in my name, right? All of these things, the signs and the wonders, and the disciples talked about them all the time. But it's, and we operated in them because of the authority that we have in Jesus' name. We have been given that. Here he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive, the Holy Spirit is the vehicle in which we do these things. The Holy Spirit is a way we, we can look at a person and say, be healed in Jesus' name. Right? That's how we can command because we have been given that authority. We don't always have to stop. Look, we always pray. The Bible says pray without ceasing. Never stop praying. We know as believers, we know that we have nothing in us, no ability to heal another person. We don't have anything in us that has any eternal value at all in a person's life. We cannot change it. We can give them good advice. We can encourage them, everything. But when it comes to eternity, we have no, no value whatsoever except by the Holy Spirit. Because when we have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, we've come into the family of God, received the authority that he has, and we are the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus. He's the head, we're the body, right? He's the mind, we're the body. We operate on his authority. And that's how we can tell that sickness to leave in the name of Jesus. And we could go way, way deeper into this. I mean, there are so many scriptures about the authority of Jesus and the authority that we have in him. It would, that would be a series all to itself. We have got to get a revelation of this, okay? But remember where it all starts. It all starts with the anointing to be called holy, to be called clean, to be called something completely separated from the, the, the corruption of the world, right? We have to live holy lives. We have to live lives submitted to him. We have to have lives that we consider all lost. Everything that I have in my life, I, my life I've been given, I consider it all lost, as, as Paul talks about. I, I, I count it as rubbish, as dung. It means nothing to me for the glory of what lies before me, the glory of Christ, the glory of receiving uh, life and eternity with him. Like none of this matters, but yet we live our lives as if all of this matters. I remember in my own life being critical of people who were just, it seemed like they were reckless in their love for God so that they were just going out and serving God recklessly making decisions that none of us would ever call wise, right? It was just... It was, seemed foolish to them. Now I look back at ashamed of myself for ever discouraging them 
They were just living abandoned. They were living as witnesses. They were living as martyrs. My life is not my own. It doesn't matter how reckless, uh, if it seems reckless, I am going to go out and I am going to serve Christ. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And it doesn't matter what comes of me just so that others can hear the gospel. God gives us wisdom, yes. God gives us a, a head for a reason. But we don't have a problem with that. We have a problem with abandoning those, that wisdom, the wisdom of men, the wisdom of our experiences when God says, I need you to go and do this. Then we take our wisdom and we turn them into, ex into excuses. God's looking for a people who understand authority. When he says go, they go. When he says come, they come. He says do this, they do it. Man, how far we have to go. We can't even get ourselves out of bed sometimes to come and assemble with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will grumble and complain when the temperature of the room or the seats aren't comfortable enough. We get a lack of commitment when we ask, can we meet more than once a week? Can we, ask, can, can we at least get together twice a week? Can we come together for a prayer meeting? Oh, I'm not sure. And we grumble and we complain over those things. Oh, I'm guilty as the rest of us. I'm guilty as the rest of us because there's so many times that I just want to say, you know what, let me just put in the minimum. Let me, let me check the box. Let me do enough that people looking on would say, oh, he's doing a good job and he's putting together a good effort. When the Lord sees into my heart and says, you're not laying your life down for me. You're not acting as a witness. You're not walking in the authority that I have given you. I feel like the church at large needs to repent. At least in the United States, the Western church. This isn't so in, in many other cultures. You don't find this in the church in Iran. Oh no, they, if they get born again, they know that they're, they're, they're most likely going to be a real physical martyr. And they know it. They know that the moment that they receive Jesus, that they will have people in their own family that will want to kill them. That's what it means to people in cultures like that. North Korea, parts of China, parts of India, many parts of, of Africa. It's all over the world. But in the West, we don't see that, so we get super lazy. And we get super critical of other people who seem to be living completely unabandoned and recklessly for Jesus, not making, quote unquote, wise decisions with their life, right? How about it when the woman came in and took the alabaster box and broke it over Jesus. And the disciple said, why this waste? 
Why this waste? We could have fed it to the we could have sold it and fed the poor. There will always be poor. The fact that they said it was wasted on Jesus shows that they didn't understand who they were sitting with. They didn't understand who was sitting at the table with them. They didn't understand his authority. If they understood his authority, they would have celebrated that alabaster box being broken over him. And they would have found everything else they could to give and throw at his feet if they understood who he really was. We need a revelation of who Jesus really is and who we are in him. I'm convinced of that. So God, I pray that you would give us this revelation. It can't come from us, Lord. We don't have it in us to get a revelation of who you are. We have your word. We have, we have teaching. We have some experience. But Lord, I'm asking for a fresh revelation that you would bring to us, individually and corporately, of your glory. A revelation of your majesty. A revelation of your authority. And in light of that, help us to see who we are in you. Give us a revelation of what it means to be a person, a witness of the name of Jesus. Dig deep within our hearts, Lord, because we need this desperately. Help us to see. Give us eyes that can see. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your blood, Jesus, and pouring out and bringing us into your family. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.